Not only is this Montana products, but it's, it's products from landscapes where the people who are managing the, that land and those animals are really doing their best to think about fish and think about wildlife and think about the long term and don't see themselves as land barons, but see themselves more as short timers, see themselves as stewards trying to leave it better for future generations. You need customers just as much as you need producers to care about the, the whole system. And so building relationships with people who care about those landscapes and want to buy the products and see themselves as much as stewards of those lands as the rancher or farmer, I think is really critical. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast. This episode is part of the Life in the Land Project, which is a series of films and podcasts produced by Stories for Action, which hears from folks that interact with the complexities of Montana's landscapes, speaking to the value of locally-led work and the holistic approaches needed for healthy communities and the ecosystems that they're a part of. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In today's episode, we're speaking with Cole Mannix, one of the founders of Old Salt Co-op, an entity with growing avenues of operations to rebuild infrastructure for Montana's meat. But their work goes well beyond the meat itself, with a mission to connect customers and producers in a shared purpose, to both be stewards of the land and to strengthen community. Currently, Old Salt includes their outpost, which is an eatery in Helena. They also have a multi-species processing facility and a mobile slaughter truck, In the works are other elements of connecting producers directly with their customers and keeping all stages of meat production localized, including a full USDA-inspected processing and slaughter facility, a meat subscription service, a catering business, and even a food and music festival. Contributing ranches to Old Salt include J. Bar L Ranch, Mannix Ranch, Seabin Livestock, and LF Ranch, all who are committed to raising quality food while stewarding the ecosystems that they're a part of. This conversation with Cole will touch on so many larger concepts that go well beyond meat and well beyond Montana, because what the team of ranchers, chefs, butchers, and entrepreneurs behind Old Salt are building centers around something much deeper. They're proving what can be possible when a business entity leads with respect for the land and the people that it's connected to. And the shaping of Old Salt is dictated by the holistic connections of people and place. This episode will speak to ranchers, policymakers, food consumers in all locations, those concerned about wildlife and their habitats, those concerned with community well-being, and entrepreneurs and small business owners of all kinds. In the face of so many pressures, of wild and agricultural lands being bought up and fragmented, of rural and urban divides, of environmental and social impacts of delocalized food systems, and a fading in human connection in general, our discussion today shows how Old Salt is creating the energy and impact to touch on all of these concepts. Cole Mannix's multifaceted background has prepared him for the many hats that his current work leading Old Salt Co-op entails. He grew up on his family's cattle ranch, the Mannix Ranch, in Helmville, in the Blackfoot Valley of Montana. From the earliest generations of their family's time there, they never saw themselves as true owners of the land, but rather as stewards of all elements of the land and waters there, something that was embedded into Cole's outlook. Cole earned degrees in biology and philosophy from Carroll College in Helena and a master's degree in theology from Boston College. He's worked as director of operations of Rancher's Original, a grass-fed beef company. He was associate director of Western Landowners Alliance, 
And he worked as a facilitator and consultant in areas of agriculture, conservation, wildlife policy, and succession planning. Now, as a lead partner of Old Salt Co-op, Cole is able to marry his passions of bolstering local food systems, creating human connections, and influencing value systems that reward those who steward the land. Cole begins by speaking about his own upbringing on the family ranch and the connection to the land that that fostered. I you know, had come from, obviously from ranching and, and certainly had an appreciation of you know, the beauty of where I grew up and, and what we did for a living, but saw it then kind of after going away just a little bit, I saw it from a new perspective. I knew that, you know, we ate our own beef. And so I knew that we were food producers, but I just didn't think of it that way. You know, we were ranchers. I didn't think of it as we were part of this food system and, and how are we connected with customers. And um, I think during, I was in school in Boston and somebody said, oh, didn't you know that, you know, cattle are unethical and, and meat. And, and I just realized that there's this huge conversation that I was never plugged into surrounding, you know, agriculture and sustainability. I had been a little bit exposed to that in undergrad, but for the first time I began just really kind of digging in and being curious about what people's perspectives were. And um, I remember a woman asking me, Oh, what do you guys do with cattle futures? And I didn't know what those were. And I remember re reading Wendell Berry and West Jackson. And at that time I was going to school as a, uh, in theology, and I was really interested in social justice, and we had spent time in El Salvador and Honduras, and, you know, grain being dumped in their economies and affecting what farmers there could sell their own grain and their own products for had gotten me interested in sort of the social justice side of food systems. And then I found myself back at Carroll College kind of teaching as an adjunct um, in philosophy and theology. And and my dad and some of his kind of associates through a network called Ranching for Profit were trying to start a beef brand to return more value to land stewardship. I, at that time, I just, that was 2012 and I went to work for them. You know, I, I was no expert, but I, I started learning how to price cows and I would meet with ranchers and kind of figure out what, when there uh, was a coal cow and bull beef program. So we were aggregating coal breeding stock and, and bringing them down to Greeley, Colorado to get processed. And we had, we, we went to the work to line up a buyer and um, you know, we were, we were trying to build relationships and we were, we were trying to gain more control over the food system. And so anyway, I kind of came back to seeing, you know, what I'd grown up in from a new light and just really realizing, you know, that I, th I think that ranching when it's at its best is a place where kind of both, um, economic activity and also a wild and taxed landscape can exist at the same time. And that's a pretty beautiful both and. And um, there's so many forces that work against it. So I just became really interested in how to do, how do you make you know, real care for land and lasting agriculture? How do you make it pay and so that it can last? That might've been a bit of a rambling connection to, to the land, but. Oh, it's all important. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it just shows you how we all can come full circle. And yeah, I grew up in the Bitterroot Valley and also probably took many things for granted and also went to school in Boston. And um, you really start to appreciate um, what's here. And also when you speak with folks that are very distanced from that relationship with the land, the gaps, as you're saying, that exist. And then our, our need to want to fill that gap of communicating. And with your own upbringing, you know, um, growing up on a ranch, if you could just give us a little context of what that was growing up 
that it's unavoidable to be removed from it, the, the physical work that it entails, and as well as if there were concepts of land stewardship and land ethics, maybe, you know, as a kid, we don't always hear it in the way that our parents might want to teach us. But if there were things that you picked up um, from your family about this concept of land stewardship and how that was kind of always embedded in how they operated, it wasn't anything new. If you can talk about that specifically for your family. Yeah, I mean, you can, it's an, it's really interesting, isn't it, how you can be right in something um, of, a fish that doesn't know you're in water and, and still be distant from it. So like I was right in ranch work growing up and um, you know, just the cycle of the season and everything from calving to fencing and, and irrigating and then haying and, and then, you know, fall work and cows coming down and out of the mountains. I mean, I grew up just doing that work and liking to be with dad. And certainly even, in, even though I hadn't seen a lot of the world, I still knew I lived in a beautiful place and, um, and felt fortunate. And I, I would say that, the family talked a lot even then about just what owner, what land ownership means. And basically they never thought of themselves as, you know, ultimately the owners really felt an obligation to the landscape long-term where, you know, us being short timers was, was just definitely part of how we were taught to think about the land. So that, that certainly was part of just growing up. I, we didn't talk, you know, overtly about sustainability. That wasn't, I don't think at that time really in our vocabulary that much, but we knew what the intention was to last and to, to endure and to keep the community going and to keep our ranch going. And um, I think one of the learned from grandma and grandpa and, and my aunts and uncles was just, they were pretty open to new ideas and different people. And they were open to an agency or a group approaching them with an interest in fish or an interest in wildlife or um, just wanting to know more. And even, even when those folks had suggestions that were a little bit new and, and would require some change of us, they were just willing to listen. They didn't always take those pieces of advice or suggestions, but they sometimes did. And, and they almost always listened really well. And so that I appreciated a lot. And I think, you know, the ranch has benefited from their openness um, and it, it's extended into their own openness to the next, the next generation's interest in the place, my own and my siblings and my cousins. I don't live there. I don't work on the ranch even today, but I have three siblings that do and, and several first cousins that do. The other thing I remember a lot was that you have a lot of opportunity work beginning work at a young age to make mistakes. And they were always very they wanted you to own up to your mistake, but as soon as you did, they were they would share all the times that they messed up. I think that was a really positive part of growing up. Whether I, you know, I drove the tractor off a big embankment and really messed up the axle one time, and those kind of you know, like those 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 kind of mistakes. If if you kind of would acknowledge it and own it, there was always more out of it that you you know got rather than got like received. Like you you needed to sort of acknowledge it, but then. They really just, you know, they completely made fun of themselves and told every story on themselves about mistakes and they made you feel much better and that you were part of it. And, you know, your big error was brought into the pantheon of errors that went before. <laughs> so I don't know, we were, we were given room to, to, um, to try things and, and to mess up and, and then that was okay. So I don't know, that's something I, that was something part of my experience of the land. Yeah, no, I love that. It's um, such a good base in humility, right? <laughs> and that's them also leading by showing you their own humility and how important that is. So let's talk about old salt. Um, I'm curious to just start at the point of conception, kind of 
where conversations started, who those conversations started with kind of the, the first seeds of Old Salt um, Cooperative coming to be as it is multifaceted and will continue to be, but kind of what were the, the initial conversations that percolated to lead to Old, old Salt? Yeah, and a lot of, uh, you know, many conversations and Old Salt is a combination of several different ranches and also several different workers um, that kind of came together and decided to form this this business. My family has had a meat brand called Mannix Beef for almost 20 years. And um, the JBRL Ranch um, was part of a, a meat brand. Seven Livestock Company um, has sold its its lambs direct to consumer for quite a while, had a locker lamb program. And they've all, we've also been part of kind of more regional efforts to try to sell products through more niche markets like Country Natural Beef, which is a co cooperative that's based out of the Pacific Northwest. And, and then I had, and so had my family, and so had Cooper Hibbard and Seven Livestock Company been part of this thing that I mentioned earlier, where I, um, back in 2012, this thing called Ranchers Original, a cooperative to market the grass-fed beef from cold cows and bulls was formed to try to be something a little bit more than, you know, more scale than local, you know, to be big enough that you could um, afford to have more control over processing, but, um, you know, much smaller than the very large, you know, industry that we typically sell into. And that had failed. It, we, we, were, we worked on it for 2012 to 2016, finally had to close it up. So anyway, there had been lots of bumps and bruises of how hard it is to make it in the meat industry. And I would say the landscape is literally scattered with the carcasses of dead meat companies um, that had a great ideas, but didn't quite work out. And then in 2017, I went to work for Western Landowners Alliance and um, had a real chance to become engaged in natural resource and wildlife and agricultural questions more from the policy side, both state and federal. The, a lot of that work too was wrapped up in this question of how do you reward land stewardship? Um, how do you make that life of actually doing that work more livable, more stable. Anyway, during that time, I had a lot of chance to think about how you might do it a little bit differently than we had done it in the past in terms of making a meat company work. And so during COVID, um, you know, March, April, when it was just kind of hitting um, hard, I just kind of started that, started writing a business plan and then running it by Cooper at Seven Livestock and running it by my brother and the family and run it by Andrew and Hillary Anderson at JBRL. And basically saying, do you, do you have an appetite for this? And we knew we had to create a certain amount of scale. And yet we didn't have a lot of confidence that we could compete out in the world of big wholesale and brands that have a lot more horsepower than we do. We were skeptical of our ability to get to the coasts and get big premiums for products. COVID had shown that there was a direct-to-consumer appetite that was real. And if you can go direct and not have to go to the distributors and you have a chance of retaining a little bit more of the margin and mo mostly just your, your, your customers really have an appetite for it. So my family runs a, a route, um, you know, one Saturday we'll drive up and deliver meat in the Missoula and Flathead and another Sunday or another Saturday we'll go up the Helena Butte Bozeman way. And that route just during COVID took off much more than it had before. And so it just seemed like some things were coming together and processing has always been a challenge and so we thought, you know, I think there's an opportunity instead of selling to three or 400 Montanans like we are right now with our little program, if you sold to 3000 Montanans, 
um, you would still be very local. You'd still know the people that you were selling to, and they would have a chance to know the landscapes it's coming from. But you'd have enough scale that you actually might be able to invest in the processing. And if you have the processing margin to add to sort of a meat marketing margin, all of a sudden that starts to be robust enough to employ people and to kind of recruit the talent it takes to manage the complexity of a meat business where you have a lot of moving parts and a perishable product and, and a relatively small margin. And so anyway, we, we just started kind of building a business plan together. And then it became really apparent that there's just a whole lot of skills that we didn't have. And so we, we began, you know, I had a friend um, in the restaurant industry uh, out of DC who's, who had a real Montana connection. And I had worked with his wife in food core uh, her name is Lee Howe, and 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 we had tried to do some farm to school stuff. And he said, "Hey, this is, I think you guys have a chance to to do something." He kind of encouraged us to take a risk, and he introduced us to another guy, Andrew Mace, who's a wonderful chef um, for, and whole animal butcher. And he's from Montana, from Laurel, grew up in Laurel, spent a bunch of time working in Portland kitchens, and was looking for a way back. To, and uh, and it started to feel like we had a critical mass of talent. Uh, people knew who knew how to do different parts of this that we could launch a business in it. You know, the North star of it is sell as much of what these kind of member ranches can produce locally as possible, building real direct relationships in Montana that are more resilient than if we were to try to go sell to a, some chain, you know, like Chipotle. And it might be harder to get direct customers, but once you have them, it tends to be more secure we knew that if you were just going to like buy the livestock from a rancher and then pay the processor to process it, you've got a real, real small gross margin. And, you know, on an animal that is worth $3,500, the meat, you know, you might have a $350 gross margin. And so you need a lot of those to add up to any kind of capacity to pay for overhead. And, you know, by our math, you, you need like 2,500 or 3,000 beef in a program um, before you can really make that standalone as a business. I mean, so we, we thought, well, what if we start with a few enterprises that can cash flow quicker, like restaurants, that at the same time market and promote what we're trying to do? And so we launched a little restaurant in October of 21, and the community just loved it. They loved it at the beginning, and they love it right now, and they've supported it just incredibly. It, we were worried that it might be a distraction because we're trying to be a meat company, but instead it's been an inspiration. You know, it's... It's just, there's so much energy surrounding it. And, and it, one of the things we talked about kind of internally from the beginning was, you know, there's, there's so many breweries in the state. It's so popular. And yet most of those breweries are not really marketing sustainable grain production. You know, it's just a good place to hang out in the community and they're making something here. And just that is a lot of energy to tap into. And then, so if we could add making something here and having a few community establishments where you know you had that local energy and fun factor. And then if we could also, you know, we are passionate about enhancing land. And so if we could also have that component to the story where, you know, not only is this Montana products, but it's it's products from from landscapes where the people who are managing the, that land and those animals are really doing their best to think about fish and think about wildlife and and think about the long term and you know don't see themselves as land barons, but see themselves more as short timers, see themselves as stewards trying to leave it better for future generations. So, I, you know, just last week we closed on a little meat processing facility um, that's here in town and it allows us the ability to, to process meat. Um, we're hoping that with a minor renovation, 
happening this fall that by the early spring we'll have a, the ability to be USDA inspected. And we will offer, you know, even, even now we'll offer custom wild game services, we'll offer custom exempt services. And then once we get inspection, we will begin offering inspected services and our own meat brand can begin to come to life. That's exciting. That's, um, yeah. yeah, and such fantastic mission behind it. On that, if you could just give us kind of uh, the bullet points of the enterprises that you have now, and then kind of um, ones that you have on the horizon of where you see growing to. Yeah, so the Old Salt Outpost is is this restaurant on Last Chance Gulch, and it's um you call it fast casual. It's a super simple menu of, you know, grass fed burgers, and and there's wheat Montana buns, and there's um, Bausch potatoes from the Whitehall area. You can get a chili brisket chili you can get a we call sturdy sturdy salad and that's about it so it's super simple we lease the space from the gold and western bar and so they can get drinks there or they can get food from us and uh, yeah that's been october of 21 when it launched so not even yet a year but it's been a really fun element in the community and it's got 13 different employees who you know part-time who who work there and are part of the old salt community now like i said we are just beginning uh, this is our first, uh, our second week of custom processing. We're gearing up to do 4-H, uh, the fair here in August, where um, hopefully somewhere around 50 beef and, and uh, 60 pigs. And so we're kind of just, just getting that enterprise off of the ground. And we have a planned renovation to have it USDA certified, hopefully by February 1 of 23. That facility cuts meat, but it doesn't have slaughter. So that's our next big mountain to climb is where can we actually slaughter animals under inspection. We're trying to order a custom built unit out of Western Kansas. And I'm really excited about that piece of equipment, but the hardest part has been finding land um, because lining up zoning and public perception and power and water and all those things is, is just a real needle to thread. So we've been working really hard on those possibilities in this Helena area, as close to Helena as we can get, um, given that that's kind of where our labor base is and that's where um, the other processing facility is. We've also been working on the packaging design and the, the the program design of how people will actually order our own meats from, you know, Old Salt branded meats. And uh, then we're also working on a catering business um, because we really, you know, that culinary side of our team is really the just the face of Old Salt. And it's, you know, trying to present people with beautifully prepared products um, because meat isn't quite like a can of beer that you can bring home and crack. And it's the same experience you had at the brewery. It's, you, you know, it's got to be done well the whole the way through. So we, we catered a big dinner out of the family's ranch in June, early June. And we have catered a couple of other events and just kind of beginning to practice and get to know what's possible with our own, the equipment and prep space that we have access to. That's great. It's, um, as I said, multifaceted and congratulations on getting that processing operation up and going. That's exciting. And I saw on your site, there's also mention of a festival. Is that also still in the works or? Yes, we are, um, you know, inspired by what Sarah Calhoun has done, you know, with Red Ants Pants and have had the idea that of a food festival, kind of a food centric and in, in particular, a meat-centric outdoor wood-fired cooking is kind of what Andrew May specializes in. He's our he's our culinary director, and and he's just um, he's a magician with fire and whether it's charcoal or wood with fire and meat. And so we have been um, planning a festival, perhaps in the Blackfoot Valley next next June in June 23. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces there, and so 
I won't overpromise just yet, but we are we're excited about that kind of engagement of rural and urban. And at the end of the day, like that really is just you don't have any kind of regenerative practices if you don't have a whole regenerative whole and you just you need customers um, just as much as you need producers to care about, you know, the, the whole system. And so ranch customer relationships and all the people in the middle of that supply chain, you know, the, the chefs and the marketers and, and everybody that is part of the process, if we can all pull towards the same goal then it can work. If the chain is broken in any of those places, it doesn't end up working. I think Old Salt as a brand, you know, the reason for calling it Old Salt was that we were trying to say regenerative without using it, the next buzzword. You know, we were, we were trying to say, hey, you know, there's a lot of ways you can degrade land. Um, the hopeful thing is that when we are intentional about it, it is, just, it is possible to use it, be economic and productive and enhance it. And that's what salt does in a recipe if it's at the right um, in its rightful place, kind of. And I, and I think so many meat brands try to emphasize the, the ranch or the cowboy hat or the, you know, the, the hero, uh, you know, the hero producer. And it's really not that it's, it's, I think by and large, most producers are trying to real good, really hard and, and, and it's not easy to take excellent care land while being productive, but they, they really need that team teaming up with customers, or you're not ever going to sort of consummate stewardship. You've got to feed stewardship and, and uh, fuel it. Um, I still think, you know, as, as interested as people might be in ecosystem services, markets and recreation and that kind of thing, agriculture is still how most of the income comes in for land stewardship. And, you know, building relationships with people who care about those landscapes and want to buy the products and see themselves as much as stewards of those lands as, as the rancher or farmer, I think is really critical. So that's, we're in it together basically. And it's sort of like, Hey, as Montanans, you know, here's one opportunity to go invest in back in the lands, why, why we live here. On this, I do just want to interrupt to give a little context on some things that Cole is speaking to. There's a lot of talk these days about regenerative agriculture, which has variations in practice, but generally means the operation is managed in a way that goes beyond having no negative impact on the environment, but actually has a net positive impact. This is more than just implementing X, Y, and Z practices. It involves listening to the land, pivoting with its changes, being in tune with the balance of the livestock animals' needs and their presence on the land. Among many benefits, Regenerative approaches improve the health of the soil, which benefits the entire ecosystem, including biodiversity and waterways, and healthy soils also sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Regenerative ranching can include rotational grazing or timing out the rotation of your cattle in different pastures so that the movement of their fertilization, foraging, and hooves aerating the soil benefits the nutrient cycle of the landscape rather than having them remain in the same area for too long and overgraze that area. But really, many rangeland ranchers have had some form of grazing management plans long before regenerative ranching was the popular buzzword that it is today. So beyond a label, it really comes down to an embedded respect for the land and the animal. But carrying out the most sustainable practices sometimes requires trying new things or experimenting, which when battling elements of weather, water management, and small profit margins, sometimes the most ideal sustainability practices are not always possible for the rancher to achieve, whether they want to or not. So when there's added value or financial resources available for enacting these approaches, 
Ranchers have a little more financial freedom to do things such as increased grazing rotations, protecting riparian areas, or improving water infrastructure. We touch more on this on the Life in the Land films and podcasts from Central Montana Plains, the Big Hole Valley, and Blackfeet Nation. Old Salt aims to address this by not only educating the consumers about these practices, but by adding value to the products produced with good land stewardship, it's an example of an effort that ensures that those folks are able to stay in business and maintain their role of stewards to that place. Another element to touch on for those not involved in the beef industry is the full picture of the beef supply chain. A lot of Montana beef is born and raised here, then sold to finishing operations, which are typically grain feedlots primarily out of state in the Midwest. Then the slaughter and butchering of that meat has become more and more consolidated. According to the USDA, since the 1980s, just four companies have increased their share of the meatpacking market from 36% to 85%. As Cole will explain, this supply chain is designed around efficiency in an industrialized method, with each region focusing on its one stage of the supply chain. But consolidation in the market leads to less going back to the rancher. In the 1970s, ranchers received an average of 60 cents per consumer dollar spent on beef. Today, that's dropped to 39 cents on each dollar, with expenses for the rancher only going up. This year especially, there have been a lot of efforts and policy to break this up, with pushes for more support for smaller, localized ag operations, including processing plants and slaughter facilities. This is the type of shift that Old Salt's operations are contributing to, providing local processing facilities so that Montana meat can stay in Montana for all stages of production, lowering the impacts of trucking beef out of state to feedlots, cutting out the consolidated middlemen and creating more benefit for Montana food producers, and connecting consumers to their food source. I asked Cole if he can give some more context on the gaps that have existed in Montana as far as the meat supply chain options and what that's meant for ranchers. Yeah, I think the gap is there just because the the supply chain was never set up to process them here. You know, the the system has kind of been made possible by inexpensive grain. And you don't have a lot of that here. And so you had specialization evolve where a lot of this part of the world is producing calves or yearlings. And then given the higher cost to get things through the winter and to gain weight in this in the West. Um, the relatively higher cost, bringing calves and yearlings to further feed them out and then finish them nearer to the supply of grain made some sense. You know, processing is kind of, it's not a bottleneck. And the first bottleneck is the market, really having good access to like who's actually buying it. This is a little bit of a roundabout way of saying all this, but there's been a lot of efforts in Montana to say, hey, processing is a problem. We don't have enough access to processing, but it wouldn't be a problem if we um, had a lot more companies that were selling meat to people out there, a lot more companies that were buying cattle from people or buying beef. But that's a that has become a very, very consolidated world. You know, the, the hourglass bottleneck, it lies in the retail, access to retail, access to distribution. You know, the the big retailers of the world, the big distributors and the big packers, like there's very few of those businesses out there. And if you really knew you had the customer base, then you could build a processing plant tomorrow. But getting all that stuff to line up at once is really challenging. Even a small processing facility, you're going to be in, you know, 
a couple million. And uh, if you aren't quite confident that you can sell all of that, then, then you might not want to make that investment. <laughs> so anyway, I, I think that a lot of the reason that the system works as it does is because we have kind of built our livestock systems around the way that the grain system was built. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I think maybe a lot of Montanans even would be surprised that, you know, local Montana beef, we have so much beef protection in the state, but it's not really known the full chain, you know, that that beef travels out of state to finish. So for what Old, Old Salt is doing and kind of connecting that, um, the producer to the customer more directly, if you can share the benefits for the producer, for the rancher first to be able to directly sell its product to the customer and kind of cut out those middle parts. Yeah, I would, I would just say that if, if you can sell enough for little enough trouble <laughs> locally, um, you know, you might get 21 or $2,200 for a, a fat animal where you otherwise might've got 16 or 1700. Usually uh, that is at a pretty small scale because um, there's just only so many people that you can sell that directly to without quite a bit of infrastructure and, um, you know, quite an effort to go just access people. So there's, there's a lot of people that will sell 10 or 12 a year or 20 or 30 a year, but to really do a lot more than that, you've, it, it becomes quite a workload. Um, but the benefit is a better price overall for, for the animal. The benefit is, you know, that price is not really dependent on whether there was a fire in a plant in Oklahoma. <laughs> if the rest of the market is, is poor, it might still be good. Um, and I think more than anything, there's, there's benefit. When we, I think when the family started, when my own family, the Mannix family started trying to do a little bit of a local brand, more than anything, like it wasn't a huge economic boon, but it was just, it gave us some energy, you know, just talking to customers who gave a damn. That's like, oh, they, they sort of care what we do for a living and, and we're interested, it, it made us interested in their, their thoughts about what we did for a living and their perceptions of what they were looking for, in a, you know, for a product. And it just built relationships and, you know, and I think it's that as much as anything, meaning that it is worth it in itself, even before you start trying to say, okay, if we, if we had just a less consolidated system, yes, we could have a better margin for livestock. And we likely could have less volatility in the market and we'd have more options. All those things are good, but it just sort of starts with, hey, somebody down the river gives a, a damn <laughs> about what we do here. And, and that just feels good. For sure. Yeah, it shows you like these, all of these concepts are very complex and including, you know, the markets and why things work and don't work. But it can also come down to things as simple as that um, and that trust and relationship. And for producers, you know, are you guys looking to invite in other producers that kind of fit along a line with that mission and what that process will be for bringing others into the fold? You know, for producers who are listening that might be like, hey, I want to be a part of that cooperative. Um, what will that look like going forward? Yeah. So we, to clarify, we actually formed as a cooperative, as a, you know, a formal cooperative. And then we recently reformed as Old Salt Co-op LLC. So we're actually not a cooperative. Um, after we formed as a, a multi-stakeholder co-op where it was owned by the workers and by the producers. And then we, we got a, some advice kind of as we went from accounting and legal professionals that that was going, that a co-op was going to not be flexible enough for what we were trying to do. We reformed, but still that we, I think we were able to maintain a lot of the principles, which is that the, 
the users um, govern the company, the users being the being those who sell products through it and those who work in it. Not all the employees, but some of them can basically earn ownership where they can elect the board and be elected to the board. Or the board is, is majority controlled by the ranches that supply it. So it's really intentionally left in the hands of, of producers at the end of the day. And we just added another ranch member. And so we're now four. Uh, that ranch is called the LF Ranch near Augusta. And so we're really proud of that. And we are built to add other producers as well. I would say we're a bit long on cattle and uh, a little short on, on hogs and lamb and chickens and eggs. And those are all things we hope to incorporate into the program. And so it, you know, we'll begin by kind of adding producers who, you know, not only sort of share our set of values, but they're raising things that we're not experts in raising yet and are trying to learn how to raise. And hopefully we can learn from those new producers. If we're able to grow the direct market that we hope to, which is, you know, we'd love to sell to five, seven, 10,000 Montanans. And if that actually comes to fruition, then I, we certainly will be growing our producer base. That's great. Um, you know, with all the facets of Old Salt, I think that your story and your work speaks to a lot of different folks, whether it's ranchers, um, as well as farmers who are trying to get their food out to local customers, as well as potential restaurateurs or just local business owners in general, I think can relate to um, the work you guys are doing. If you don't mind just sharing a couple of the realistic challenges in that, I mean, restaurant business alone, I'm sure as many, but if there's any that you've come across that you're like, oh, this is just such a headache for locally owned operation to move forward, just something that you've witnessed that you're like, oh, if more people just talked about how that's a problem, maybe we could change it. Yeah. Um, I mean, just a few things. One of the initial huge challenges in launching the restaurant was labor, but um, I think we just all kind of pitched in and I learned how to clean a grease trap and, and uh, we, we basically just did it ourselves for a while. Andrew's still, he's the one that really knows about restaurants, but he lives in Portland. So um, Ross Eikenberry is our director of operations and Caroline Webster. And, and they're just a whole bunch of us who were trying to start this, just started working in the kitchen and learning it as we went. And it took maybe until we launched in October and by, I would say by January, like people were, it was really hard to find work at first. We got no one on Indeed or any of the typical platforms, but pretty quickly got a little bit of momentum and people just really wanted to help and they were excited about it. And we have a great team down there. And so that was just more about us kind of taking a leap of faith and hoping that, you know, if we build it, they will come. And, and they very much did. We're always interested to find like people who like care about this and have competence and want to join like that. Well, well like the standing job description, uh, it's just standing job offer to anybody. But on the other hand, like that problem after we just kind of gave it hell for a few months began to solve itself. The processing, the lack of custom processing at this point, when we actually have customers and they want meat now, that is really challenging. And so that's why we're trying our best to get it up and running. And one of the hardest things with that is that there is actually right now a lot of state and federal grant funding out there to support this. We applied for a lot of it. Um, we've gotten, we got a little bit, we may get a lot more, but even with the grant funding, it's really been more local kind of challenges of in Lewis and Clark County, in agricultural zoning, we're being told that livestock slaughter is not acceptable. You know, the way I read the zoning rules, um, you certainly could interpret it as including 
uh, livestock slaughter, but you can you could also not interpret it that way. And that's kind of the way it's being interpreted. And um, those things are just really hard. You know, you, you get a lot of the things put together, but local rules, county rules, city rules, um, there, there are reasons to have some distance between a slaughter and composting operation and a whole bunch of people. You know, there are reasons for that. And yet, on the other hand, there are reasons for it to be close enough to a labor pool that people actually will, you know, can access it. And it's not, you know, prohibitively expensive to haul people out all the way to the work, you know, the work site. So you need some proximity to an urban area, but you, but it needs a little bit of ruralness. And there are those parcels out there, but right now it's been a, it's been a real needle to thread um, to find a zoning that has anticipated that need. That is like one huge challenge. I would say another challenge has been um, right now, it's hard to find um, people to do your taxes. <laughs> it's like, it's really hard to find that, particularly us trying to do something kind of unorthodox where the workers and the producers own the business. There's a lot of um, legal and sort of tax questions that and in structuring your business to begin with that are challenging, very challenging. We've and we've been lucky, lucky to eventually, I think, find some really good help. But boy, that's that's been a steep, a steep curve. And I, one thing I would mention is that early on, for the last year, have been working with a bank called Steward, um, and they have their first Montana employee now in in Bozeman. He's a great guy, and and Steward is probably twenty five people or so spread out across the country at part of this company that basically raises money from private investors to be able to make loans to businesses like ours. And uh, they've really focused on, on this um, regenerative agriculture space. And they have been a godsend. They've got the, the people who can help you think through registering securities when you raise money. And they've got the people who can help you think through all the boxes that need to be checked if you're going to buy real estate and, and do a construction project. And they have just been incredibly supportive. There's definitely been challenges, but I think overwhelmingly there's been an appetite, whether it's people supporting this little outpost or whether it's people being willing to invest, there's been a real appetite to help. And that feels like I'm incredibly grateful for that. That is good to hear that. Um, hopefully that is outweighing the challenges and not to put you on the spot to think of one moment, um, but just does something come to mind, whether it's even a conversation or just an overall general win that's come out of this that really showed you like, yeah, we're on the right track and it's really needed and it's really important. Or even if it was like a conversation that you had with a consumer about educating them on stewardship of the land or local food systems, that just to be able to have that direct education with, with consumers. Well, I'll tell one kind of fun story, which is that uh, at the outpost, I was serving one night and and a woman came up and she was like, uh, what, do you guys, what, what do you guys have that is vegan? And I said, well, we, we have a salad and, but it has chickpeas that are fried in beef fat. <laughs> and she's like, well, I'm not sure about that. She's like, I'll try the potatoes. So the potatoes are fried in beef fat as well. And uh, so she, she, she ordered the potatoes and she came back and ordered a double cheeseburger. So that was pretty fun. But I think, I think just, just generally, I mean, we, we had this dinner out on the ranch, about a hundred people at the beginning of June that our team put on. And we, we had, you know, 70 people on the waiting list within two weeks and people are just, and, and then we held it. And I think it was an enjoyable time, but I could never have anticipated just people are just interested to get out on the landscape. And that, that appetite is, is really powerful. 
and it gives me some hope that you know that we want to be more connected in, in economic exchange and in that if we are in that way then we're also just more connected and understanding each other a little bit more and you know i, I think a lot about the beef industry like people ask well about the changes in the beef industry and the like why was it so consolidated why is it so consolidated and one of the watershed moments for sure was when the industry went to boxed beef where you know, it used to be, if you imagine these Vans thrift stores in Montana, which are relatively local, very local grocery store chain, they would have had their own butchers and carcasses would have arrived at those stores to be broken down and further cut and ground and put out, in, you know, in the case. But um, as the industry went to box beef, those grocery stores, you know, stopped having as many butchers and they stopped cutting the meat themselves and they just put it out once they get it. And I think there you could never, I don't think you could um, underestimate how much relationship was lost between the customer who shops and talks with the butcher and the butcher who cares about their profession and the butcher who understands where things come from. It's, it's a little bit hard to, like no label and no certification or claim can ever communicate all the things that are important or even very many of the things that are important at all. It's like people that just kind of, live in it every day in the business like a butcher in a grocery store and then the people who shop at that store and their their conversations um, and their curiosity like that's where real information exchange happens and so in one way it might have been more efficient in the industry to be able to sell you know a restaurant can literally call cisco and order a thousand pounds of terrace major even though you'd need you know 500 animals to make a thousand pounds of terrace major but on the other hand, it's efficient that way, but it's inefficient from the perspective of real knowledge, real connection to your food. Um, that certainly is lost when you consolidate and kind of say, well, all of this kind of processing is going to happen in Greeley. <laughs> all of the feeding is going to happen over here and you know, wherever, Iowa or whatever. And all the cow production, cow calf production is going to be over here. There's definitely something lost in the in terms of relationships between customers and producers when that whole thing gets streamlined. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for clarifying all those parts um, and the reality of that. <laughs> with that, you know, something that we've spoken a lot with folks in the Life and Land project is just this importance of keeping um, locally owned family operations on the landscape, you know, and pressures that family ranch operations are facing that are pressuring them to sell. And there's whole complex slew of components that lead to that, including low profit margins and, you know, demand for land. And um, if you can just share the reality of, you know, the, the risk of a family owned ranch being sold, it's an unknown potential of what that land could be turned into one of which is development and fragmentation of the land and habitat and soils and watershed. But also what I've heard too is the potential of corporate beef industries buying up those operations. Um, is that something that you see as a realistic threat in Montana specifically? And kind of what that means as far as what you eliminate in land stewardship and the ability to have that direct accountability for stewardship of the land if that happens i mean it certainly is a real risk to that that the farm and ranch land of the country becomes more corporatized that's certainly happening you know land is a the kind of an investment that diversifies a portfolio nicely and i guess i just i think that in general the best 
planning in the world that a corporation might have. And I'm not even necessarily saying that um, they have really good planning, but like, let's say that they were just super intelligent and they did a pretty darn good job because a lot of them have the means to hire really good managers. Still, I think more people who own their own land and are uh, smaller operations tends to be more resilient and it tends to have more community members who have a memory of a place and a knowledge of the place and kids in the school and a, and a, you know, again, some kind of connection that is more than land as asset. It's hugely part of uh, people being just one part of the whole ecological community rather than being a dominant part that sees it all as an asset. Um, I know a, quite a few, you know, corporate owned ranches um, that have managers who are very thoughtful and the the companies themselves sometimes are very thoughtful about those operations and often are really good stewards, but there is still something different about them owning it ultimately as an asset or a second home or a third home. There's still something to me that's very different between that and, you know, a family's security and sense of place and a community's, um, you know, a, a school's being full of kids. There, there are plenty of, not to idealize it too much, you know, this, you know, plenty of little farms or ranches that maybe don't do the best job or they're so vulnerable, you know, that, but on the other hand, I just, I would put my um, hope in sort of the next big thing being many little things rather than the opposite. That's and along those lines. I just also think it, it, it's important to say, like, I really think that oftentimes the whole regenerative or, or, you know, whether you call it, regenerative or whether you try to talk about a more natural way of doing things or grass-fed or organic or whatever it is i think more than more than not we squabble amongst ourselves about what sort of the true pure agriculture is and that it's pretty destructive because for the most part those of us who care about conscientious management of land um have that is a much bigger thing to have in common than a, a, a label or a certification. And I think at the end of the day, we just need to create a scenario where there's more opportunity for more producers to have better return on their equity and better return on their ranch products to the ranch. And I do think that that has to, that's going to have to involve some big industry changes and that is going to involve policy changes. But for me, you know, old salt was like, well, we need the policy changes, but let's just try to start some little thing and see if it can claw and scrape and survive. And at the same time, though, we do need like we do need, I think, industry wide change to make sure that more value gets returned back to the farm and ranch gate. And if that happens and people are less squeezed down to the bottom line, down to just what is the unit of production that I actually sell when they're less squeezed, they have time to do what they already naturally do, which is to think about the long term and to think about soil and to think about fish and wildlife habitat and, uh, and to be a member of their community. But if they're constantly squeezed to get bigger and scale up or just get out of it and sell the asset, you're not, that's not a conducive um, environment for stewardship to flourish. Absolutely. Very well put. And yeah, it's, it's much easier said than done and, and the realities of what ranchers are up against. But on that, I'm wondering, I know there's probably boatloads, but with you saying there's policy changes to be made, is there like one thing that comes at the top of your mind that a lot of folks and peers you hear talk about of like, we need to drive harder on this and talk about shifting this one component? I, I think we need to fragment essentially the, some of the biggest packing companies and, and, and distribution companies 
I mean, at the end of the day, um, there are just too few buyers. And some of that may be new legislation, but plenty of it is just enforcement of existing legislation that we just haven't been able to get through. You know, even even if the admin, if the particular um, administrative agency responsible for enforcing the law uh, understand its responsibility, maybe it gets defunded, and all of a sudden can't, you know, actually just carry out its function. And um, there are so many aspects to to consolidation, and that I'm and I'm not an expert in them, but I I think at the end of the day, what we have is a situation where the producers are getting less and less profitable over time. And at the same time, the price is going up to customers and that money can only be going one place. It's, it's going to a bigger share for a few. I think for a long time, we've thought about um, consolidation gets to be too much when, when the price is no longer good for customers and when the customer's being harmed and that's the customer is being harmed. And that is partially because of consolidation, but I think we also need to think about the, the production side being harmed. And that's probably what our laws don't adequately contemplate right now um, is that there's more to production than just the, the units of production. There's, there's the taking care of the resource. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's important for, you know, not only decision makers and policymakers to hear, but also the general public, I think, um, so that they can also advocate you know, folks that care about local food and care about open land and the vitality of rural communities, that um, it helps them to know those challenges so that they can advocate where they can and when they show up to vote and talk to their own um, policymakers. Yeah, th there's a lot of talk about younger generation leaving agriculture, um, but then there's a lot of young ranchers and farmers I talk to that are like, I know a lot of young ranchers and farmers. I'm just curious from your own perspective, I think especially when there's more and more talk about this concept of stewardship and local food and connecting with customers that it helps young people to get excited about agriculture um, and getting into it. What are you seeing from your perspective as far as that full flight from agriculture? Or are you seeing some really exciting energy connecting to agriculture? Oh, I think there's a lot of exciting energy connecting to it, for sure. I mean, I, I would say like just statistically, the only sectors of agriculture that are growing in our country are urban, is kind of urban agriculture. And so I, I do think that like, it's just a fact that we have sort of um, less overall agricultural livelihoods to go around when it, when it comes to production agriculture. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean there's not youthful energy in it. And some of the youthful energy in it is like, I just know so many people who they have, uh, they are supporting, they're interested in land stewardship with their software skills or their, you know, they're, they've, they're, they've very highly educated. Um, they are choosing a, a lower income lifestyle by far than they otherwise would have. And yet they're after meaning as much as anything else. And I'm not saying like, that's the most desirable situation. I think a desirable situation is where you can actually, you know, the, the, the proceeds from the sale of these products can go back to justify the, the thoughtfulness and the work and the skill of their stewardship. But in the meantime, energy and interest in agriculture finds its way to involve itself, whether they're 20 somethings in finding, you know, the, the Quivira new agrarian internship program, or whether it is 30 and 40 somethings who are like doing agriculture on the side of their fancy day jobs, people, love to work with land and animals like a lot of them do 
And so I think that energy will be there. And I think the more, like I said, like growing up, I knew we were ranchers, but I really didn't think of ourselves as part of the food system exactly. I just never really contemplated that. But once the family kind of launched, once my aunts and uncles launched this beef program, and it was them, not not us kids that launched it, all of a sudden we got excited because people people cared about, you know, where it is we came from and what we did for a living. And that's that gave us energy. And so that's the kind of thing that even if it's actually not the main breadwinner, at least at the beginning, it can be the instigator. Absolutely. Um, on that, is there anything else that you messaging that you'd want to share with the general public that may see themselves as removed directly from um, the beef industry, from ranching, from even rural Montana in general, other than being a consumer of the food product at some point in the chain? Um, any misconceptions that you may hear a lot um, that you want to get out there or messages on how the general public can also help support um, local producers? I, I think the main message is just that the customer is as much a steward as the producer, and it has to be seen that way. The more I sort of put my dollars into products that are essentially anonymous, that I have no chance of having in a relationship with, you know, the, the more I feed a system that is not supporting stewardship. I just think customers being conscientious um, about what they're going to feed, you know, what they're going to sustain is, is so critical. So I hope just that I don't think a successful like uh, agricultural movement can be sort of dependent on farms and ranches. <laughs> Agriculture is just all of us. We really do need the whole, the whole group of us to say, uh, we need something better than this in, in as many instances as we can, whether that's investing through a group like Steward or whether it's investing with what you purchase on a, on a weekly basis. We need to put it closer to home if we want to see home be a beautiful place. Thank you so much to Cole Mannix for speaking with us. You can learn more about Old Salt at oldsaltcoop.com. That's co-op.com. You can grab some awesome food at the Old Salt Outpost in Helena and follow both Old Salt Co-op and Outpost on Facebook and Instagram. Also, that awesome festival that Cole mentioned has since set its dates for June 23rd through 25th of 2023 in the Blackfoot Valley. Thank you all so much for listening. You can check out all of the films and podcasts from the Life in the Land project at lifeintheland.org. The content is made to be shared and can be used as a free tool for organizations and community groups to kick off workshops, community conversations, or to incorporate into curriculum to look at how holistic and locally guided initiatives can apply in your own region or community. Please be sure to share these podcasts with others, subscribe, and leave us a review. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Stories for Action is a production company with a mission to use the power of storytelling to create human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and find out more about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. This second season of Life in the Land is possible through the generous support of the Crocus Foundation and the Greater Montana Foundation, which encourages communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans with additional support from Sarah Rubick, Rodney Fry, and Beth Madden, 
and in-kind support from the Common Ground Project, Milton Ranch, Bioregions International, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, and Solid Ground Consulting. You can help to support this work as well. Any amount is greatly appreciated, and your contribution is tax-deductible. Find out more at lifeintheland.org. Thank you so much for listening and furthering the conversations that create human connection around a thriving planet for all.